Hey everybody, I'm Peter Maravellis. I want to welcome you to City Lights. Before we begin, as is customary, uh, I want to remind you we are on Ramatishaloni land. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge those who have come before us as the stewards of the land. And uh, also very delighted to have Jane Smiley with us. Uh, this is really such a treat and such an honor. And of course, you know, she needs little introduction. As many of you know, she's an award-winning novelist, essayist, um, also, you know, has come on to create really some of the most amazing literary gems in the canon of American literature, uh, National Book Award, Critics Circle Award winner, a Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, and though her fiction is like very widely celebrated, you know, she's also a really amazing writer of nonfiction, and this is what we are celebrating today, a book that's called The Questions That Matter Most, Reading, Writing, and the Exercise of Freedom, um, which is published by Heyday Books. And we're very, very happy to have Steve Wasserman with us here, who is no stranger to City Lights. Uh, he has been kind of part of the fabric of literary culture in the United States for many, many years. Um, he's a former editor-at-large for Yale University Press. Uh, also, he was the principal architect of the San uh, Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. And also served as editor for the Los Angeles Times Book Review for many years. His writings appeared all over the place, Three Penny Review, The Nation, Village Voice, and so on. So uh, the way we're going to conduct the evening is uh, we'll have them in conversation, and we'll open it up for a little Q&A from the rest of you, and then uh, have a little signing afterwards. So Steve, such a pleasure to have you. Miss Marley, really an honor. Welcome to City Lights. And Thank you so much, Peter. Um, I haven't been upstairs at City Lights for probably not since last century. Uh, back at what seems that this removed the Pleistocene era. And I really, I feel, I'm not a religious person, but entering into City Lights is about as close as I come to feeling uh, the spirit. Uh, I have been coming to this store in one iteration or another for 60 of its 70 years. I first entered these portals uh, in 1963, 10 years after Lawrence Ferlinghetti established the place. Huh. Uh, when at age 11, my family moved to the Bay Area. And of course, one of the first things they did, being the kinds of folks they were, um, they made a beeline for this <laughs> citadel of free expression, which already by 63 had championed uh, and fought great battles for free speech and had won them. And, and then to have watched over the, down the decades as this place nurtured writer after writer after writer, you know, I come in, I feel, I feel overwhelmed uh, in, in, in lots of ways. And um, so I just wanted to, to start by saying, uh, in addition to a land acknowledgement, I want to have a book acknowledgement <laughs> here to, the, uh, to the, the, the ancestors pictures of whom uh, graced the walls uh, from Virginia Woolf and Walt Whitman and, and, and others, um, too numerous to mention. 
uh, and you would need several lifetimes over doing nothing but lying semi-prone uh, in a semi-darkened room with a single lamp on for illumination to even read your way through a quarter of the riches that are that hold up these walls. So, um, so the purpose of this uh, gathering, or at least of our conversation, let's be frank, is to sell Jane's newest book. <laughs> let's get that out of the way. Um, so one of the purposes of publishing is not just to write for oneself or to manufacture book-like objects which you store in your attic and show to your dearest friends, but it's actually to find a way to cut through the noise of the culture and get attention for deserving work. And that is a very challenging thing to do in an age of distraction, in an age of forgetting, uh, in an age, shall we say, of velocity, to find the time and the solitude to actually think through the issues of the day or even the issues of one's family, to figure out how we might uh, be more fully human, more ardently engaged with others, is, the gr is one of the great uh, promises and challenges of literature itself. And I have never thought of the activity of writing as being solely the province of the so-called novelist or solely the province of the essayist. And um, so when we proposed to Jane that over the years there were enough of these occasional essays that she would commit that could be put together and bound up in a little ribbon attached to it. And it would be a kind of convenience for those of us who count ourselves among her admirers who were tired of clipping them as one used to do from the old-fashioned magazines or journals or newspapers and folding them up in quarters and putting them in the backs of the relevant books that she might have been comment commenting on that they might exist easily in the hand and might repay visiting, she kindly seemed to thrill at the prospect too and sort of said, well, if you do the work, yeah, I'm happy to show up. So, uh, well, there was some work. I had to go searching through boxes and boxes of, oh, sorry. There was some work. I had to go searching through boxes and boxes of stuff and try to remember, now what did I, what was that one? Uh, it, so there was, that was my work. Well, that was great work. I'm so happy you were able to locate the boxes because, you know, we don't accept any of these things uh, for granted. So, spoiler alert, while we are going to talk about, or I hope to talk about, some of the um, many things that are, are touched upon and explored in the book, I don't want to give away the whole book here. So, because I really do want you, each of you, to, you know, diminish that stack. <laughs> and even buy another for a friend. And despite the uh, empty chairs, I do want you to tell others in your circles what you missed tonight. Because in <laughs> matters of literature, I remain a kind of Leninist. Better, fewer, but better. And so each of you grows in importance in direct proportion to the number of people here. So. Uh, Jane has written over the years on all kinds of things having to do with the nature of fiction, the nature of particular books, her admirations and enthusiasms that range from Anthony Trollope to Charles Dickens, uh, a particularly... That's not very far it's, no, no, Trollope no. to Dickens. I, I know, but since he, he, he was a postmaster, you got to begin somewhere. You yeah, know, that's uh, true. Um, and Dickens was famous for... when he. 
astonishing thing, there are many astonishing things about Dickens. Let's start with Dickens for a little bit. Um, you tell a wonderful tale of being first uh, assigned the book and sort of put off by it or sort of mm -hmm. delaying until very late in the day when the assignment was due. Well, this was in this was in seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. So in seventh grade, uh, we had to read Oliver Twist. I didn't understand a word. Um, in eighth grade, I believe we had to read uh, we had to read another one. I don't remember which what which one it was. I didn't understand a word of that one either. And so I was really dreading, and that meant, and also in seventh, eighth, and every grade in high school, we had to read a Shakespeare play. I understood Shakespeare better than I understood Dickens. And so in ninth grade, um, we had to read David Copperfield, which was way thicker than the other two. And I remember putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, and finally I, it was due on Monday. So I went down to the basement of our house and I sat down, opened it up, and I read it in two days. And I just adored it. What was it that so captured your imagination? Well, I think he was more um, descriptive in the places that David went. I think it was, it was less political and more, it was a little bit more autobiographical. Um, and one of the wonderful things about it for me was that I, I felt that I could picture, there's a, there's a scene where David goes for a long trek, he's trying to escape, and um, I felt like I could picture that. And that got better and better as the book went on. Now I have to say that um, I love David Copperfield, but the one that really drew me in was our mutual friend. And so when I was a senior in college, um, my husband and I were living in a little commune-like place. And on Christmas Eve, I pulled out our mutual friend, and I was going to read a few chapters and then go to bed. I read the whole thing overnight. I could not put it down. And the more I read it, and I could picture things. I, this time, I not only could picture the, the, the setting, and the characters, but I was really struck by the the metaphors and the the language that he was using, and I think that was when I first said, "Okay, I got to try this. I really got to try this." And so I I always say that was the turning point. Now, the, one of the striking things about Dickens, in contrast to novelists that come much later is that Dickens is famous for being able to describe interior states of mind without mm -hmm. ever actually appearing to enter his character's heads. He describes things from the outside in. Mm -hmm. And so... But Di also through dialogue. Through dialogue, of course. Through dialogue. So yeah. he's re he reports, as it were, yeah. what people are saying, but he never directly tells you what they're thinking. And it's one of the reasons why Dickens became such a um, favorite of early filmmakers, because you can mm -hmm. diagram the novels and you can picture board them, because he describes so well the setting, the scene, yeah. the, 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 the feel of the wind, or whatever is going mm -hmm. on. He's incredibly vivid with it. And since movie making is all about a succession of images, mm -hmm interleaven with dialogue and only as 
in that way can they reveal an interior state if unless they use voiceover right. it, Dickens any number of his books quickly became favorite movies or were depicted as, as, as film yes I think one of the most interesting things about Dickens was that he was a total insomniac and um, he would get out of the house and, and walk around the neighborhood and he was an avid walker so he would walk in a long way around and he had a great ear and so that his dialogue was one of the first um, examples of somebody listening to the various things that but not only ideas words assertions emotions but also the various dialectical forms that he was seeing when he was in London and hearing. And that's how he pulled um, the, the world around him into his books because he heard so clearly um, how people said what they meant. And that made his characters just stand up and show themselves. Um, he also had a great sense for weird names. And um, he would go to graveyards, and he would look at gravestones to see, you know, which had the weirdest names, and then he would put those in his book. And fantastically, and perhaps even unusually successful in his own lifetime, at, mm -hmm. at, at having an audience for his work, most of which, if I'm not mistaken, were serialized uh, yeah. in the periodicals or newspapers of the day, mm -hmm. um, which begs the question maybe of the uh, of that strange and porous boundary between so-called fact and fiction. How was it that uh, publications that were ostensibly dedicated to reporting the ostensible truth about uh, the world in which people found themselves were also publishing in its pages what was uh, declared to be a fiction? Weren't they afraid, do you think? that people might mistake I don't one for the other? I don't think Dickens was afraid of anything. And he managed at least one, maybe two of the publications where his things appeared. And so um, he knew the difference between fiction and nonfiction. He knew that nonfiction was about observation, but fiction, which is also about observation, was really about telling a story. And he was really good at creating suspense. In, in those stories. So he was able to pull in all of his talents um, and use them in, the, in different ways. He was very politically astute um, and also outspoken um, about his opinions. Um, but he managed to just do it. And um, he was also one of the earlier novelists of his, of his era who was really, really interested in life in the city mm. rather than life in the country. And I think that gave him a larger fan base because he would, his characters would go in and out of the city, in and out of the country. Um, and so you, you, you've got this huge pano panorama of British life. Uh, in those days, and I think it was I think it was really fascinating. And what was it about that work that he was doing in 
19th century England that you felt um, you could learn from or be inspired by in telling stories about your own time? Well, probably the first things I, I noticed were characters and um, settings. Um, and But then I began to notice, as I kept reading Dickens, and other novelists too, I began noticing um, his theories about politics, about society, about psychology. And um, he, one of, the, one of the things I do remember reading was that um, Sigmund Freud was a big Dickens lover. And he learned a lot of his thoughts about psychology from reading Dickens. And I think for a young person like I was, that was really interesting. Um, I was kind of a um, kind of a dork who sat over on the side and listened to what the others were saying. And I think reading books was help was what helped me understand what the other what the other kids and my teachers and stuff maybe were thinking and how they were thinking. Um, and so it was a, for me, it was a combination of observing, eavesdropping, reading, and saying, hmm, okay, maybe, maybe I can make a story out of that. In another essay in the book, you, have, uh, you contrast your views of the, um, the promise of this kind of storytelling with what strikes me a reader in with the um, with uh, Neil Ferguson, uh, who's a historian. Do we really have to talk about that shithead? Yes, we do. <laughs> y- yes, because uh, his coarse and reductive views um, are shared widely among many people who disparage literature as some kind of strange. Uh, game that is played and doesn't hold a, and distracts people somehow from he's grappling with the. He's a historian. And Let you, me talk, so about talk about that a little okay. bit. So I was being interviewed on the BBC, and I can't even remember what we were talking about. But anyway, we they asked us to do an interview about the difference between his, the historical novel and history. And um, we were at the BBC. I'd stayed at the Langham, which is my favorite hotel in London because it's really old, and there's a, the the walls are full of pictures of writers that have stayed there, including Trollope. Anyway, um, we I began. He he kept saying <coughs> that the historic that the historical novel was a secondary form not worth paying any attention to. And um, I finally got to say that I felt there was a difference between historical novel and history. One of them was history had to be made up of, of, of facts as far as it could be, and that every historical work is incomplete because more facts are going to be found, and that's going to fix that's going, somebody's going to have to come back and fix it once those facts are found. 
And I learned that by being working on an archaeological dig. They were always finding something on an archaeological dig that they didn't even know existed, you know. And so that's what I, and I love history. I took a lot of history, and I always thought history was fun, and I liked it. Um, and then I explained very carefully, because he was an idiot, he wasn't paying any attention. I explained very carefully that a novel had to be a fully formed thing so that it would make sense to the reader and that a reader reading a historical novel wants the story to make sense, wants the history to be as as accurate as possible, but understands that it's up to herself, the reader, to, to decide whether to suspend disbelief or not. Well, I said those things, and Ferguson and the guy who was with him and the and the just cut me off again because obviously as a female I was an idiot even though I was a good four or five inches taller than he was <laughs> um, so on the way uh, uh, <laughs> this is my favorite part so somebody I used to write a lot of stuff for the Guardian so somebody from the Guardian called me up and said they wanted me to write a piece for them, an essay for them about that. So I wrote that on my phone. I'd never written, uh, I've never written on my phone before. So I wrote that on my phone. And then um, someone else told me that several bookstores in England who had heard the radio show had sent Niall Ferguson's books back <laughs> to the publisher. They weren't going to sell them anymore. But I can I can think I mean you know I I read that and of course um, I I detest Neil Ferguson for his slavish uh, devotion to uh, the insufferable um, war criminal Henry Kissinger, who oh, yeah. he acquitted himself of a. Uh, and I he think, thinks he's not writing fiction. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, one could think of uh, numerous novels, historical novels, that. Um, as an act of imagination and truth-telling are much more than the compilation of so-called facts. I think of uh, Margaret Yosinar's great Memoirs of Hadrian, mm -hmm. which is a wholly invented yeah. um, so-called memoir, uh, which is as uh, remarkable in its um, understanding or seeming understanding mm -hmm. of a historical epic far removed from us yeah. as anything you might encounter that has the uh, virtue of, of a certain kind of historical veracity. Well, one thing that a historical novelist wants you to do is get interested in the subject and go look it up and see what you can find out about it that maybe he or she didn't have the opportunity to stick in there or didn't fit or whatever. Um, and so it's not like a historical novelist is saying, this is right. A historical novelist is saying, this is a story. And, you know, Ferguson, trying to resuscitate the reputation of, what's his name again? Kissinger. Oh, yeah. Kissinger. That's a story. You know, and I'm sure, oh, never mind. Yes. <laughs> well, um, when I lived in New York, 
I lived in a sort of railroad flat. On one wall, I had fiction um, organized, uh, you know, from Arabian Nights to Virginia Woolf, <laughs> right? Sort of, you know, al alphabetical order yeah. by author. And on the other wall, I had history from, say, Plato to NATO. Oh, cool. Right? And people would sometimes, well, often, would come into the house and they'd sort of look at the, these walls of books and they said, well, how do you organize your books? And I would joke, um, although it was less of a joke as time passed and I aged, I would sort of wave my hand toward the literature wall and I say, oh, well, those are all the lies. <laughs> and then I would sort of gesture to the wall of nonfiction and say, um, the, the truth is on that side of the wall. But as I got older, I came to realize actually there's more truth in the short stories of Chekhov than in the whole of Gibbon. Mm. Well, maybe. I, one time we, I was doing an event, and actually it was in uh, MPC, Monterey Peninsula College, and a guy raised his hand and he said, was I ashamed of myself of telling lies for a living? <laughs> and, and Jack looked around to see if he was pulling out a pistol. Um, but I just explained to him what willing suspension of disbelief is. I, I said, I'm Didn't Picasso say something to that point? Once, uh, I think he remarked that art is, is, is the lie that is in the service of truth. <laughs> um, which, depending on how you well, we parse it. We all know stories. Yeah. You know, what I remember when I was growing up, and one of, this is one of the reasons I turned into a, a novelist. I, I, I grew up in a family of storytellers. And uh, every week, usually every week, there would be some kind of family dinner, and afterwards we'd play games. And the, my, my grandfather and my grandmother, but especially my grandfather and my aunts, would all tell us stories about when they were growing up and where, where they were. And they had a pretty adventurous life. And then I'd go into the kitchen uh, to, to get a drink of water, and one of the aunts would come and say, well, that's not how it happened. This is how it happened. <laughs> and I think that's an incredible boon because I'd hear the story, the story would make sense, and then I would see the different points of view um, that the family members had about that particular story. And that gave me a real interest in, in fiction and storytelling. Let's, uh, as is often said nowadays, let's pivot to another story. And um, one of the... Uh, uh, Are we going to circle back later? Nah. <laughs> nah. Um, we'll leave that for another occasion. Um, you write very uh, provokingly, uh, both at the time the original piece was published, but also upon rereading it, um, you have some very critical things to say of uh, Mark Twain and of, and of Huckleberry Finn. But it's not the usual thing, I think, that's said of Huckleberry Finn. Um, you take issue with the way, for, with several things, one of which is the way in which Huckleberry Finn came to be considered, at least by some, and, and some of those were very powerful uh, figures in the culture, it had become anointed as the great American novel. Mm -hmm. And you take issue with that on at least two counts. One, you don't think it actually works as a novel, particularly the last, say, third or 
yeah. or so of it when Tom Sawyer uh, comes back in and, and, and Jim fades from view. And the second thing, uh, and even perhaps more seriously, uh, is the way in which uh, Jim is actually uh, treated as a sort of adjunct to Huck. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that a well, bit. Well, I thought it was interesting when I, so I'd broken my leg, I'd fallen off a horse and broken my leg. And that so did I'd, not teach you to get, you, you, you kept getting back second. on, right? Yeah. And, um, and so I decided to reread, I decided to read um, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, I decided to read Uncle Tom's Cabin, I decided to reread Huckleberry Finn, which I hadn't read since high school or junior high or something like that. And I think I read Huckleberry Finn first. Mm -hmm. And then I started, because I was now a writer and I was interested in stuff, um, I looked into the history of Huckleberry Finn and I saw that he had set aside, once it came to the moment where they went south past the Missouri state line, he set aside Uncle Tom's Cabin. And to me as a writer, I mean not Uncle Tom's Cabin, Huckleberry Finn, to me as a writer that was an absolute sign that he didn't know what he was going to do next because I had set books aside because I didn't know what I was going to do next. Um, and then it was really clear that when he picked it back up, the, the only way he could get down the river, which was obviously his goal for, the, for all of them, was to put, push Jim aside because he was putting Jim in danger. And that was, and at the beginning, the point of the book was to save Jim. And so he sort of, I, I thought it was, he just put it together in this weird, stupid, not, I, I thought he put it together in this way that didn't really work for me. And I didn't think too much more about it, and I picked up Uncle Tom's Cabin. And Uncle Tom's Cabin at that point didn't have a very good reputation because of the expression, and Uncle Tom. But when I read about Uncle Tom in the book, I saw that Uncle Tom was an extremely spiritual guy. And he wasn't just sucking up to people. He had a real deep feeling that he had a purpose and that he was going to serve his religion and serve God. He was a very spiritual guy. And he was contrasted by these female characters that nobody ever talked about who were incredibly brave, one of whom took her baby and basically ran across the, sur the icy surface of the, the uh, Ohio River. Um, plus another, an old woman um, who's very cranky, who learns from helping, uh, helping train a, a young uh, slave girl who's very um, hard to handle. And I thought, why is that, why is that mixed up mess that is Huckleberry Finn considered the greatest American novel and this book which really does explore a very important issue why has that been pushed aside just because yeah. Uncle Tom is a spiritual guy yeah this is the very question 
that uh, James Baldwin put to me when we had dinner in 1979 at Chez Panisse with a dinner arranged by the late Tom Luddy, who was one of the uh, directors of the early years of the Pacific Film Archive, um, and uh, was a kind of cultural consigliere to Francis Coppola uh, for many years. And uh, we were at this dinner, and Baldwin was trying to convince Tom to intervene with Coppola for Coppola to hire Baldwin to write a screenplay of really? Uncle Tom's Cabin. Wow. And, and, and we looked at him and said, good grief, being under the <laughs> sign, laboring under the sign of this discredited book, uh, uh, you know, which uh, had become synonymous with this uh, term of opprobrium, an Uncle Tom, yeah. presumably derived from the way Tom was portrayed in mm -hmm. this novel. And so we looked at uh, Baldwin and said, good grief, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And he looked at us, he said, have you ever read it? And uh, Luddy and I looked at each other and sort of kind of sheepishly said, no, not really. He said, it is, it is the great unread novel. Everyone thinks they know what it's about, but the last time anyone read it was in the run-up to the Civil War. It was read by something on the order of, there was no literate American person who had not read this book, which had been yeah. serialized. Something like 28 million. I mean, it was a huge, huge number. I don't think it's even been equaled by the number of people who read Stephen King. I mean, as a proportion yeah. of the population, Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel was... Not, which is why it is said that when she met Abraham Lincoln at the White House, he turned to her and I suppose somewhat jocularly said, oh, so you're the little woman who's responsible for this great war. <laughs> yes, he did uh, apparently say that. Um, uh, but it, for me, reading those things was what inspired me to write The All True Travels and Adventures of Liddy Newton. Um, I had started out Wanting because we read so much Shakespeare, I'd started out wanting to write in the four major forms. I wanted to write an epic, a tragedy, a comedy, and a romance. And by the time, so I I wrote the epic that was the Greenlanders. The tragedy was a thousand acres. The comedy was Moo, and. I started reading about what romances were, and they weren't about love, really, uh, originally. They were about travel. And so once I had read um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, I was in Washington with my 10-year-old uh, daughter, or I guess she was a little older than that at that point, but anyway, it was a t at the time of the Oklahoma bombing, and I called uh, her dad to tell him that in Washington it didn't seem like we didn't see, we we weren't seeing anything we didn't it didn't seem like a general thing. And I said, but I need to write about conflict in America. And the first word out of his mouth, because he was a historian specializing in American history, was Kansas. Hmm. Now, I will say that if you are from St. Louis you try to pay as little attention to Kansas as you possibly can. You, you look across the river toward the East Coast and you try to be elegant. <laughs> so I had never read, read anything about the Kansas conflicts, 
But I got out, I got some books and I read, and I thought this is totally fascinating. And so that's how I came to write Liddy Newton. Yeah. Well, I mean, the contradictions, the paradoxes, the ironies, the blood, the mischief, the troublemaking, the aspirations, and the betrayed promises of American history are <laughs> bottomless uh, and will be an inexhaustible uh, pool of yeah. uh, storytelling. Yes. Uh, <laughs> until the end of time or climate change really gets us, whichever yeah. comes first. Um, I thought we should open it up to some uh, questions, uh, Some open up uh, this dialogue. I, Can I, just, I just say one thing? There are two short stories in this book. Yes. And um, one of them is called Gregor, My Life is a Bug, and it's about Gregor Samsa, um, who doesn't die when they toss him into the trash bin. He wakes up and escapes. So that's about him. And then the other one, um, I got really interested in when I was doing 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel. I, nobody had ever told me anything about the Heptameron. I knew, I'd read the Decameron, but I hadn't heard even heard of the Heptameron. And Heptameron is a book that Marguerite of Navarre, the Queen of Navarre, um, wrote as a as a you know version of the Decameron about two hundred years later, it, where the people are sitting around telling stories, and but she ha she makes a rule: the story that you can tell um, has to be about whether a young woman can know true love and retain her virtue. So there are about 73 or 4 stories in the Heptameron that the people tell. And because it's during the, the Counter-Reformation, they're much more thoughtful in their discussion of the stories after they've told than they are in the Decameron. And I thought that was totally fascinating. So I was asked to write a story for the Shakespeare uh, library folio library and I chose to write a story that's in this book about um, called Marguerite of Navarre gives Desdemona um, some advice and it's about it's a set of letters that go back and forth there's an intermediary um, between Desdemona and Marguerite where Desdemona tells what's going on and what should she do? And Marguerite tries to help her. So that's the second story that's in here. So, so there are two stories that spice the nonfiction uh, essays. Uh, so one of the great delights um, of um, spending time with a collection like this is you get to spend some time um, in the gravitational field of uh, Jane Smiley's <laughs> sensibility. And, uh, you know, I mean, here's what I would say to the loathsome Neil Ferguson. Uh, um, you know, anybody can make history. It takes a great person to write it, but it takes an even more talented person to tell us a story that we could believe in. And um, Jane is that person. And I invite you to uh, perhaps have some questions or a a comment, a, a, a brief, but you know. Um, so we don't have a microphone for people in the audience. So if you just stand up and sing it out, or yeah. uh, you know, we'll hear it. 
I really like questions, so please come mm -hmm. ask them. Yes. Hi. Well, that's a, that's a great question, and thank you for asking. Um, I knew that I, I, for in college, I took Old English. In graduate school, I took Old Norse, and we read a lot of sagas. And one of the things we learned about was the, that there had been this Norse colony in Greenland. And there are plenty of sagas, or not plenty, but there are several sagas about um, the Icelanders going to Greenland and what they did there. But then then there then silence and then the Greenland colony ended. And so I knew when I first was starting out as a novelist that I wanted to write a novel about the end of the Greenland colony. Um, one of the things you have to do if you're writing a historical novel is decide if you're going to use a straightforward modern style with some alterations, like in dialogue or something, so that the but you have to figure out how to make it seem true to the world of uh, your characters. Now, for Old Norse, which I was pretty good, pretty well, un I understood pretty well. There were some interesting psychological aspects to the language itself, and one of the ones was that. The characters didn't think, didn't say, or the grammar of the language didn't say, I thought. It said, it fought me. Or I, you didn't say, I dreamed. You, you would say, it dreamed me. So to me, this indicated that they did not see themselves in the same psychological way that we do they saw themselves as the objects of sort of universal attention. So I did not think I could write about the Greenlanders in a modern way. It took me a lot of time to get used to that archaic style. And I think I, you know, I think I took me ages and ages to get through the first 50 pages of the manuscript. But then the odd thing was that once it clicked, it just sort of swept through me. And toward the end, for the last, say, two and a half, three months when I was writing the novel, I would sit down and be write, typing and writing, and I would think I'd written three or four pages in a couple of hours, and I'd look at my watch and I would have written 20 pages in eight hours. Because it just felt like it was just being handed to me from up above or over there or something like that. And it was a really peculiar sensation. It's the only time I ever had that sensation. Um, and after I was done, I really liked the Greenlanders and I liked writing it, but I, I wasn't quite sure I wanted to have that sensation again. <laughs> That's quite extraordinary where it, it, it sounds like you're describing... Um, <laughs> as if you were, you know, channeling something that was coming through you 
that's uh, that's kind of what and it you felt were the like, instrument yeah. for the telling of this story that that's you're kind so of what it felt plugged like. into yeah but I don't believe in that stuff so yeah no, I'm I, not I, gonna I, buy that yeah <laughs> yeah and and that wasn't not a pleasurable place to be in or it was or you were gripped by it but didn't want to revisit it I, I guess I would say I was gripped by it but I didn't want to revisit it um, but it it remains pretty powerful, pretty powerful unique. Drug. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, might there be another comment or question? Yes. Uh, my name is Raj, and uh, I'm an engineer by profession. And I was I was at the uh, University of Iowa doing a bachelor's in engineering, and pretty much at the same time mm. as you were. You mean at Iowa State? Iowa City. Yeah. No, Iowa State is where I was. Oh, you were in Iowa State. Okay. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. I was in Iowa City. Oh, okay. And I was involved with the International Workshop, uh, Writers Workshop. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I, I'm sorry. I mean, I went to the Writers Workshop, but then I then I got a job at Iowa State, and that's where I was in the 80s. Okay. So, uh, uh, my question is that, uh, I'm sure This is a question, uh, uh, just so that everyone uh, can hear it, a uh, question about translation and uh, whether or not uh, Jane uh, works with any of her translators, uh, either in, in European or Asian languages, as her books may uh, appear. Um, I answer, if the translator wants to send me questions, I'm happy to answer those. But I do believe the translation is up to the translator. Um, and I, I don't feel like I can that my opinions are going to help the translator do it. I'm not a perfectionist. Um, whatever the translator comes, it's, it's sort of like I feel that every reader has an absolute right to his or her own opinions about any book that they're reading, and I think that's also true of the translator. Because if the translator doesn't have a sense of what he or she is doing as she translates the book, then it's not going to hold together. So in some sense, when, the, when your book is translated, you hand it over to the translator, and they're the one who carries it and then hands it over to the, to the new um, different audience. And do you feel a similar... Um, uh, tolerance, let's say, for the way in which your books are received either by critics or the reading public? Or to put it another way, do you read the reviews of your own Never. books? Really? You can resist it? I'm yeah, crushed. I know. I haven't read, <laughs> haven't read a review in, in ages. Um, because? No, because... Um, well, how many reviewers are here? <laughs> not not reviewers, but critics. How many professional critics are here? No, none. Okay, I'll say what I really think about critics. I think professional critics are sort of like parasites. <laughs> and their job is to not... Their job is to always treat books... I don't know, like a kind of virus, you know. I don't know. They they can't say 
this is a really good book. I totally love it. They have to say, eh, this is a pretty good book, and I kind of like the first part, but then so-and-so sort of goes off, you know, blah, 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 blah. And that just, I found that very annoying. I think readers have a right to their own opinions, and so do critics, but readers are just reading it for pleasure. Critics are reading it also to gain status. And so... Would you agree with a formulation that would posit writers who are professional writers are probably, when they choose to think about another writer's work mm -hmm. and comment upon it, um, that that is an opinion that, at least for you as a potential reader, is one that you would take more seriously. Yes. Just the way that a poet writing about another poet's work might mm -hmm. result in a more informed, empathetic, even by turns critical, but still yeah. somehow within the guild. Yeah, I've done plenty of book reviews mm -hmm. um, for various newspapers. And I try to be both as open as on and as honest as I can, you know. But I, I want the reader to be curious. I don't want the reader to say, oh, well, this isn't good enough for me. I want the reader to read the review and say, hmm, that, I wonder if that's interesting. That sounds kind of interesting. I, maybe I'll look into that. And then the reader can decide whether to buy the book. Um, so I don't always give fabulous reviews, but one, you know, I, I, I try to be as, you know, exploratory in the review as I can. Yeah. Well, as you know, I edited the Los Angeles Times book review for nearly a decade. And I've given a lot of thought to this question. Um, and uh, for me, the, the best kind of criticism or, or review of a book or a play or anything is, the kind, is, a, is a, a piece of writing in which the reviewer extends, as it were, a helping hand to me, the reader, and I enter the world that they're describing, or the experience they've had, which they're trying to communicate to me, both their enthusiasms or their dismay or whatever it is, and it, do, it matters hardly at all to me as I read what they are writing, what the particular point of view or even argument of the review is. What matters more to me is that I find myself step by step, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, at the end, thinking, I don't know if they're right or wrong about this, but it hardly matters because I can no longer think about the subject in quite the same way. And if, I, if they've accomplished that great, if they've met the challenge of turning me, the skeptical reader who, <laughs> who doesn't want to check his critical faculties at the title page, but is willing to go along with yeah. what you're telling me, and it, at the end of the day, it turns me inside out, and I see the world with new eyes, and prompts me maybe to pick up the book and judge for myself, that to me is a wonderful review. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think readers, writers and readers form a community of, of communication, you know, um, even if they don't even live in the same period of time. They, the community that they form with books and other readers 
can is very expansive. But the guy who's who's the professional critic, he's the guy sitting in the room who's sneering at everybody. You know, who's snobby. Now, having said that, um, there there is a place for <laughs> the critic. I would I would I would indeed like to read a defense of snark. That is to say, which which represents the, the sort of the perverse pleasures of the insult comedian. Um, and there is a role for, let us call it in a highfalutin way, literary hygiene. Sometimes a work appears that is so egregious, so offensive, that it would be wrong not to do everything you could to drive a wooden stake through its beating little heart. We're talking about Neil Ferguson. Right? We're talking about Neil Ferguson. <laughs> And perhaps others that are your favorite. In other words, one should sometimes not. Um, one should. There is a pleasure to be derived from keeping one's hobby horses tethered <laughs> closely by, so you can jump upon them and ride them. You say so. I do say so. Well, we would love to see you form a line. Jane will find some I'd books. See, I'd love to have another question. Maybe one first. more question. Yeah. So I think there's I, I know you're familiar with Princess of Thieves and Tale of Genji and like you know all of these books that we were reading like an insane number of books that this being basically seen as a novel and something that I feel like this really stands out is that in a lot of different cultures some of the first innovators of the form of novels are women mm -hmm. whether it's Tale of Genji or Princess of Thieves I think Orinoco by Alfred Dean and Alfred Gisville was like the first English novel and I'm curious like Um, well, I'm guessing that in those, in those societies, um, the women who were literate knew that they were unusual and in also many ways knew that they were on their own. So they used their reading as a way to establish their own identity and also um, to learn about the world that they were living in independently. That's the great thing about a book. You have your own opinions. Um, and you learn to have your own opinions also. So I think that um, when they said to themselves, okay, I'm going to try that, it was private. Nothing was stopping them. The issue would become, how do I get this published? Um, and they had to solve that issue. Each each one had to solve that issue in different ways. But as but the the writing itself is such a private thing. You're writing for yourself to begin with. You're learning from your own work. You're getting more and more self confident as your work builds on itself. Um, you're fixing it if you don't like it. You're you you are your own judge, and then you turn around after having read that book, and you say, "Wow, I know who I am now." In a lot of ways, and I think that was uh, I, I mean a perfect example of that. I feel is Jane Austen. There's never a moment in any of her books where you don't sense her self confidence her ability to look around her world and make up her mind about it 
even if she's just telling about it in um, a, a sort of light and kindly way. Um, you just have this feeling. She knows exactly what you're doing. She's doing, excuse me. So when you grow up reading Jane Austen, she can be your model. You can you can have that same sense of observa observa observation and also that same sense of um, self-confidence that she has. It goes to the heart of why reading is a subversive act. Yes. And it gets it into the question of the subtitle, reading, writing, and the exercise of freedom, and why it is that all authoritarian and tyrannical societies seek to ban books mm -hmm. and restrict reading, because the act of reading, that's also why if you look at the depiction, the pictorial depiction of people reading books, particularly as the book becomes uh, more and more common, um, they're almost never of men reading. They're almost always of women reading uh, 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 by a window, uh, in solitude. And reading, reading is not an activity that is uh, collectively done. Um, uh, you don't read with others. You read alone. Your imagination runs riot. Uh, writers need readers to complete the work. And uh, reading is one of the most extraordinary ways of uh, resisting being bullied by your society. Uh, you are not, yes, you are in the presence of an authorial voice. There, are, there is this story, you're absorbed, you're embraced by it, but you have the freedom, no matter how specific uh, Dickens, to circle back to the original uh, progenitor of this conversation, no matter how specific he describes the characteristics, you imagine the character's appearance in your head, which is why it's so disconcerting when you go to see a, a movie's depiction. It's why movies essentially impose upon you in a in a way that immediately uh, calcifies the story. Yeah, in a that's way that why there's reading. so many different versions of a lot of books. <laughs> to be sure. Thank you for your attention. Jane will sign some books, and uh, I uh, urge you uh, out of both self-interest and your interest to uh, buy one or two or more. It's a wonderful book. Um, you will complete the work.